Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Today, I'm joined by two cybersecurity revolutionaries. Brian Green, the former BISO of a little company named Salesforce, and Brad Moldenhauer, the originator of the CISO's Gambit and the former CISO of a leading legal firm, Steptoe and Johnson. Brian and Brad will be sharing their perspectives for what's coming in 2022 and applying some of the lessons learned in 2021. Brian and Brad, thank you for coming on to the show. Appreciate you guys being here. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the dialogue today. Question for you, Brad. Everything that has happened in the last, shoot, the last three months, let alone the last month and a half with everything that happened with Log4j, there's certainly some things that we can predict are likely to continue to happen. But I'm really interested, from your point of view, what are the things that you're looking at and saying, huh, this looks like it's maybe more of a trend and actually a full-blown change or something that you feel that is currently trending that might kind of die off? Based upon what we saw in 2021 with the threat landscape and some of the magnitude of those attacks, I think that this year, and look, I don't want to start on a, on a bad note, but I think it's inevitable, right? So I think what we've seen, if you look at that collectively, is that critical infrastructure is now a prime target, right? Um, and so I unfortunately expect that you know, national critical infrastructure, um, and that's not just limited to the United States, but in, um, you know, the global economy will be the main target for both cyber criminals and what I would call digitally capable nations. Um, you know, and attacks will blend across operational technology, which we see in a number of leading manufacturing firms and information technology systems. And ultimately, what that does is it drives up the complexity of defense and response for IT security teams. And I think that, you know, a lot of the ransomware gangs out there have seen that that attack uh, in particular is most successful when it impacts an organization's customers. So attacks will be designed to impact service delivery of these organizations. And when we and when we couple that with critical infrastructure, you know, the targets of these attacks in particular, I think are going to be, you know, telecommunications, healthcare, government, energy, transportation, and even water management systems. Um, and that's, that's really concerning. Uh, but it's where I think that we've been trending. So I think now what we can safely say is cyber attacks are everybody's problem now, right? Or let me ask a question on that, Brad, though. So are you saying then that uh, there will be more of a concerted effort on the side of the attackers to really go after large things like utilities, et cetera, et cetera? Are you suggesting or saying that it's more nation states type activity or just pure for-profit criminality that we're looking at dealing with? You know, I think it's a little bit of both, actually, really, because you know, the days of attacks being um, highly opportunistic, I think, are, are down now. They're much more targeted in scope, um, especially with some of the, the you know, high profile attacks that we've seen. I don't think that 
you know, when you saw the Colonial Pipeline or, um, you know, some of these other big name organizations that have been impacted throughout the years, I don't think that this was, hey, let's just send out um, a series of phishing emails to any address that we've gotten off the dark web and let's see who takes the bait. Uh, I think that those were timed and targeted attacks to, you know, um, really look for financial gain or who knows, just to disrupt the global economy. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, Brad. I, I agree with you 100% on the critical infrastructure. That that certainly remains, you know, top of mind. And and frankly, from a national security perspective, of the you know the utmost importance. You sort of spurred a memory for me with the opportunistic comment. Um, I was actually thinking about opportunistic in, in a very different way. So, for example, what we've seen with you know ransomware and, and cyber attacks and, and those sorts of things, attackers and, and and threat actors are very much opportunistic in the sense of. Look at uh, you know healthcare institutions or some attacks that we've seen across the higher ed spectrum. You know where they know um, open enrollment, for example, or you know if, if hospitals and other healthcare organizations are under attack. Um, there's certainly an opportunistic way in which you know folks would pay ransomware and those sorts of things if you know they're they're being able to uh, unable to deliver healthcare and those sorts of services during these critical times. Brian, I was fortunate to catch a portion of your talk, but I do recall one thing that you had shared, which was the nature of the ransomware attacks continues to evolve, right? So before it was, A, give me some money or you don't get your data. And now it's continuing to evolve to where you do get your data, but I'm going to leak it anyways, unless you pay me more. Do you consider that uh, trend to continue? Do you think it's going to go all the way to where it's both just the double, triple extortion? Or do you think it goes in a different direction? Yeah, you raise a good point, Sean. You know, what we what we originally saw with ransomware when it started was exactly as you described, just a single extortion, you know, uh, pay us or you don't get your data back. And then obviously, folks were restoring from backup and, and sort of, you know, circumventing their ability to extort folks. Um, but what we're now seeing is exactly as you described, sort of those triple and quadruple Extortion mechanisms where you know they'll they'll encrypt your data and they'll exfiltrate it, uh, steal it, and then they'll also hit you with a DDoS attack. And then now what we're also seeing is threat actors are doing all of those things, and they're also communicating with your customers. They'll say, "Hey, you know, uh, did you realize that you know this this bank uh, has disclosed your data, or there's been a breach at this bank? Have they informed you?" And they're starting to uh, you know turn the turn the pressure up and turn the heat up on on the on the victims. So that kind of trend then as the ransomware threat actors are continuing to get more and more aggressive and trying to shake people down even more. How do you see that, Brad, affecting some of the things you mentioned earlier, which is, is it going to be the continuous ransomware shakedown that we've seen over the last couple of years? Or do you see it evolving into something different that is just malicious for malicious sake? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you take a take a look at the evolution of ransomware, it's quite fascinating, really, because it's almost like you can see the thriving business model. Right. Um, I think that at one point it was pretty much seen as an equal opportunity attack. And, you know, any organization can you know become a victim. Right. And but as time went on and, you know, organizations got more mature with, say, their DR and business continuity capabilities, Ransomware actors were getting flustered, right? They would have a successful attack where, hey, you know, we've landed a beachhead, we've uh, moved laterally, and we've encrypted all their data, and we've been and we've given them the ransom request, and they would never hear back. 
because customers were then restoring and reconstituting their data from say a cloud backup or some secondary or tertiary form of data recovery, right? So what did they do to kind of circumvent or countermeasure that was they added data exfiltration to their repertoire, if you will, right? And I, I mean, that's a really interesting advent before because when it came to, to classic ransomware, I would say, we were all focused on the prevention of compromise and lateral movement. Now we need to really hone in and add the prevention of data loss to that as well. And what makes these, what I think is really scary about this is, you know, we have the nation states who are involved in this, not from the actual threat actor perspective, but the ones that are putting out cybersecurity regulations, right? And what these malicious actors are doing is, they are using these cybersecurity regulations and weaponizing them um, to leverage the threat of having to pay a a hefty compliance fine. So for instance, you are a hospital that has been hit by a ransomware attack with an extortionware element. That means they have exfiltrated a bunch of protected health information. Now, you have the option of reporting that to whoever and paying that compliance fine as it's written to the law, these ransomware gangs are very well aware of what that cost would be. And, and don't just stop there. Think a GDPR violation, which is very prescriptive and what the financial penalties would be. Well, they know to lowball that. So, you know, it, it's almost like, okay, well, hey, I can pay this, get my data back and not have to tell anyone. That is very alarming. So, Brian, one of the things that you had mentioned uh, in one of our earlier conversations was around uh, the continued rise of cryptocurrency, right? So my mother being from El Salvador reminds me every day that uh, El Salvador is the very first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as a national currency. She's very proud of that. She doesn't know what it is, but she's proud of it irrespective of that. Are you seeing, as it relates to payments and ransomware, et cetera, et cetera, and the continued explosiveness of things like Bitcoin, do you think it's also going to be utilized uh, for the greater good in the cybersecurity space or the use cases are still going to remain around currency, et cetera? Yeah, it's a, that's a complex one and a great question. I, I think that it's, uh, you know, like most things, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think there are, there are absolutely positive benefits from cryptocurrency at large and, and frankly with blockchain as well. Um, but as we as we painfully know, there are nefarious uses for crypto as well, right? Just the, the decentralized nature and the inability for, you know, the legacy sort of financial controls and export controls, um, you know, in which nation, nation states, uh, you know, try to impose sanctions and penalties and those sorts of things. Extremely difficult, right? Which is why we're really struggling. Um, I love that you you brought up El Salvador. Um, I think maybe you took a sneak peek of my my notes. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting to see El Salvador adopting or accepting crypto as its national currency. It's it's pretty amazing. And um, for those of us who are um, interested in in cryptocurrency, it's a very interesting development. So, Sean, to, to simply answer your question, I think yes, the the proliferation and the use of cryptocurrency will continue to be a, a cause for good across the world. Um, what's going to be very interesting for me in 2022 is going to be what, you know, what ultimately happens in the verdict from the, uh, the Security Exchange Commission versus Ripple. Um, that lawsuit's been ongoing for a couple of years now. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think from a trend perspective and from an outcome perspective, I think it's going to have, you know, ripple effects across, uh, uh, no pun intended, ripple effects across 
the uh, you know the cryptocurrency world. You know um, how will government you know how will governments treat crypto? Do they treat it as a currency? Do they treat it as a you know how how are they thinking about it? Which will you know ultimately imply some sort of regulatory and compliance and governance uh, restrictions with with it. So it'll be very interesting to see, and I think uh, hopefully in twenty twenty two we'll have a, an outcome to that. Brian, uh, for the audience and, and other folks uh, like myself that aren't that familiar with that particular uh, case, could you give us a quick overview as to what's actually happening and what's the uh, thing that's being litigated? Yeah, and and I'll give you my disclaimer that I'm not an attorney, um, but you know the the net net of it is effectively is that the SEC is suing executives at Ripple uh, for allegedly raising funds by selling XRP, which is a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin BTC. Uh, effectively as an unregistered security. So they raised, these executives raised literally, I think, you know, a couple of billion dollars by selling these uh, unregistered securities, according to the SEC, um, versus an initial coin offering. So they're, you know, how effectively how the, you know, the, the crypto was brought to market is the concern of the SEC. So there's a lot of really competing, uh, you know, legal opinions on this and, and so on. So, um, you know, the, the court case has been dragging on for some time. Yeah, that's something we definitely see a lot. Um, there was I was watching a a YouTuber who's exposed some of the pump and dump schemes that are around crypto, where you have individuals if they were dealing with, uh, let's say, securities, it would be securities fraud and definitely would be in prison. Uh, but effectively promoting uh, cryptocurrencies that are DOA, but uh, getting enough people to buy in, they sell at the very peak. They exit their position and they walk away with tens of thousands, in some cases, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of profit, unfortunately, all on the backs of the people that are uh, supporting them. That is a very disturbing trend. And I can see why the impacts of that particular lawsuit and the outcomes uh, could be really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's for all intents and purposes, it's the Wild West. Um, you know, governments don't know what to do. Uh, ransomware and threat actors are taking advantage of, of uh, you know, uh, being able to use cryptocurrencies to extort folks. Um, and frankly, even just look at the price of some of these underlying, you know, assets or equities or whatever we're calling them today. Um, you know, the, the price fluctuation, you know, these crypto winters where, you know, the price is, you know, moving, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60% over a relatively short period of time. You know, you don't see the NASDAQ or the Dow doing that or other exchanges across the world. So, you know, it's it's the it's the Wild West. And, you know, I think the parallel that I draw is, you know, this is like the Internet in the late 90s. And, you know, no one no one was able to look into the crystal ball and, and guess or, you know, uh, you know, understand what how and what the world would ultimately evolve into. But here we are. So, you know, I, I look at crypto very much through the same lens. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would just add to that. That's exactly my perspective, too. I mean, it, you kind of said it. I love that expression. It's the wild, like it's in its wild west stage because it's an absolute magnet for theft, hacks and fraud. Right. I mean, realistically, it's a criminal's utopia. Right. I mean, the low bar of entry uh, for fraud, um, you know, it, it's just, you know, frail and disjointed regulations, uh, a notable absence of effective law enforcement. I, I mean, you could go on and on. So ultimately, I mean, I'm just kind of keen, you know, to see until we have some kind of regulation that establishes a framework of rules and law enforcement evolves um, its capabilities for investigation and prosecution. Attackers are just going to run wild. So it's a perfect analogy, Brian. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then the, you know, the funny thing to me is I see a lot of real estate that's listed. It gets all this headlines across the news networks, like, you know, house for sale and the owner's accepting payments on crypto and Tesla's online store is accepting crypto for t-shirts and things like that. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's all of the things you said, the, the criminal utopia, but it's also businesses are actually using it for good purposes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, coming from the legal industry, I'll tell you guys, um, there's a number of law firms that not only, mainly the, the big ones that have huge blockchain practices, they actually accept cryptocurrency payments from their customers now. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, I don't want to make it sound like it's all bad because, uh, you know, there is a school of thought that says, well, we can get rid of ransomware by eliminating cryptocurrency. Okay. Well, you need to think about it from a world economic standpoint. That, that's easier said than done. And law of unintended consequences. What will that do other than get rid of ransomware, which it probably would not? No, it would just shift back to, uh, wire transfers to offshore accounts. <laughs> Venmo me, $2 million. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Half a million Venmo. Could you imagine that? What, what would be the VIG on that? That'd be like, what, 3 5%? Jeez. Some of the case law, Brian, is definitely one of the things you're looking at in terms of our prediction of 2022, that there's going to be effectively potentially monumental change in that aspect of the market. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Absolutely. Earlier, we were talking about uh, the continuation of, of cyber attacks, uh, specifically on the industrial and uh, areas that have traditionally been kind of ignored outside of uh, state actors. Now, granted, we saw the Colonial Pipeline situation, which happened last year. Uh, we've, I think we've all kind of talked about that situation to death. But as you're looking forward uh, to this particular year, is there something else that's sticking out and you're going, man, like if this continues down this path, it's going to be really good or it's going to be really bad? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, something that's bothering me, and I'm sure in your guys' engagements, you're being asked about this a lot, too, is, um, you know, the role and function of cyber liability insurance, right? Um, well, I, I think most of us have all come to terms with, hey, this is something we need in order to you know, do business. But what we're starting to see now is I've been questioned by a lot of people that have said, hey, you know, because of a lot of these huge ransomware attacks, a lot of people are filing claims, right? And with that, what we're starting to see is, and this is a real concern, is that now, um, you know, these these cyber uh, liability insurers are essentially adding uh, some kind of assessment, you know, to how they come up with their premiums, right? And look, we know insurance companies are here to make money, right? Um, and my concern is something that I've already seen, that we've all seen and maybe not thought about, but is some of the compliance regimes out there. Like, um, you know, I don't want to call anyone out specifically, but, you know, sometimes we're administered questionnaires that have dated security control requirements in them. Like, as an example, you know, a litany of security controls around the protection of data on compact disks. You know, to me, what that is, that is a culture of controls that is focusing on adding additional controls to make up for the shortcoming of others that have failed. And the efficacy of those is no longer relevant. So these compliance regimes or standards or questionnaires are being heavily influenced by certain security vendors that are trying to protect their profit streams. But their controls do not properly mitigate risk. 
And what my concern is now is that some of these security players with dated with with dated security architectures and solutions and approaches to how we implement controls, their connection to the insurance industry is going to be to promote those dated architectures, right? So, you know, as an example, you know, if uh, your insurance broker issues some kind of uh, due diligence ass assessment on your environment and you don't have signature-based antivirus technology, oh, well, you don't get the good driver discount. Yeah, so it's I that is a dangerous trend or prediction that I have that I hope does not come to fruition because you know we 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 need to be more forward thinking in our security transformational approaches, not these incremental changes or staying with the past. You know the things that you know led to a lot of harm for many of us. Yeah, so you bring up a a, a very interesting point that is I think endemic to the technology industry as a whole, which is getting a bill of goods of capabilities or outcomes that were promised that are ultimately not delivered in certain situations, right? Now, I recall some years ago, uh, there was a massive lawsuit against an organization that had uh, created a stints for people's hearts that uh, was effectively allowing them to continue to live life without having to have major uh, surgery. It turned out that in that situation, uh, they were defective and uh, people died because of it. In our industry, yes, the loss of life could be one of the outcomes of a negative cyber outcome. But what I have yet to see, and, and I'm sure it's happened, I'm just not aware, is vendors and or providers of solutions getting in the line of fire from the actual consumer slash user of said technology and being held into account for the technology not delivering what it's supposed to. I mean, we could argue that uh, the last 15, 20 years of uh, kind of legacy architecture and approaches has led to the sorry state that uh, the industry seems to be in now. Do you think that this is something that... Uh, could potentially expand to further include vendors in that regard to where the insurance company starts finding them liable? If you notice when there is um, a really big high profile breach, um, sometimes we'll see a couple varying responses to it. Sometimes it's to, you know, look at the threat actor and try to blame them for what happened, um, which by the way, we all know that's an uncontrollable variable. Okay, we need to understand that threat actors are there. We need to understand their motives, but that's a variable that we cannot control. Okay, what we can control is our vulnerability to whatever it was they exploited, right? And I, I think that it, it, the point you're bringing up is fascinating now that I'm giving thought to it. It's when it comes time for that, and we're actually kind of, you know, we, we're past incident response and recovery, and now we're doing lessons learned and really documenting that after action report is maybe filing attribution to the security control that failed us and really caused us harm. Because, you know, and the reason I bring up the, the anecdote that I did about those compliance regimes, and I'm sure you guys have sat through this as well, you know, I'll have some third-party assessment of risk where somebody comes in and they're administering these questions. And, you know, they, not, let's keep with the example I brought up. You know, one of the questions will be like, how often do you update your death files uh, with your antivirus program? 
And that's kind of where I just start running down and probably not what they want, but it's what they need is really kind of a coaching session where it's like, okay, we're talking about controls. Let's start asking some basic questions because this is what I do in my environments. Does that control actually prevent a risk? Um, is it executed manu- manually? Is it scalable? Is it verifiable? Is it sustainable? Is it scoped appropriately? Right? <laughs> like, you know, when you start adding all these things up, um, you know, for me, it's pretty simple. It's like, okay, that control is either strong, insufficient, or flawed. In this case, it's flawed. So, you know what? I'm not going to keep spending money on it. I'm going to redesign it and remove it. Right. And I think that. You know, that would be really interesting if people started looking at it from that perspective. Now, there is a secondary school of thought to that, which is, well, maybe the solution we had in place could have prevented what happened. But, you know, we weren't properly using it or we didn't have the you know, technical wherewithal to understand how to properly enforce that. Brad, you started this conversation down sort of an insurance and cybersecurity liability angle. So I'll continue on that. Um, I think one of the challenges we have with that particular industry is is ultimately they they don't sufficiently understand or know how to effectively measure the efficacy of security controls. Um, so as a result of not being able to do that effectively, what they do is they in turn um, just become overly prescriptive, right? And they start getting into sort of you know referencing some of these uh, what we sort of you know, talk about as legacy security controls, like you mentioned, DAT files and, you know, firewall segmentation and DMZs and, you know, all of these sort of legacy, very legacy type of terms that we don't, um, you know, that we're trying to, with Zero Trust, move away from as an industry. So I think, you know, there's these sort of this problem of these lagging indicators where these insurance companies and these underwriters and these people who are trying to to be the arbiters of risk, um, they just don't sufficiently know how to do it. And, And frankly, they're just you know, the, the tail is wagging the dog effectively. Like, so that's, I don't know how we as an industry continue to, to make progress in this, but I think it's, it, you know, like everything, it just continues to evolve and they're trying to do what's right, but um, they're in a losing game here in, in a lot of respects. Brian, is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, some key takeaways that uh, they might be able to utilize in either their additional research or conversations with us or with the rest of their peers? Um, I, I think for me, I'd like to end on a positive note. And I think, you know, when we talk about risks and threats and all of these bad actors, it's it's a little bit of a downer, right? So I think for me, at least, I think how I'm thinking about this is, um, you know, as we as we move to zero trust and as we modernize our infrastructure, um, just start thinking about this less about, you know, doing incremental change and more getting into uh, just more comprehensive, holistic change, rethinking legacy architectures. And, and I think we recognize as an industry, it's a very difficult thing to do, right? To to sort of uh, move away from the way in which we constructed and architected networks and, and cybersecurity controls in the past and, and start thinking about them in a more, you know, public cloud centric um, security as a service type of model. Um, I, I know that this is a very difficult transition, but I, I think, you know, with that, comes a tremendous opportunity to really build systems that are, you know, scalable and much more, um, much higher efficacy uh, as we as we move into this sort of new world. So again, appreciate the time uh, and thank you so much. Brian and Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe or comment. If you would like to hear specific topics or have feedback on how we can improve the show, please let us know. We take everything from the audience to continue to improve 
the content that we provide to you. Thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2022.